All right, Exodus chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 21. This is the word of our God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now jump down to verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants... I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Sends the reading of the Lord's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless it this morning. Mighty God, we thank you for your word. It truly is a lamp to our feet. We ask that you would illumine our path, that you would guide us, Lord, to understand you, to know who you are, and to worship you to submit to you, to bow down and to fear your name. Guide us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So there there seem to be two ways of seeing God in American Christianity. And there's probably lots of different ways. Um, But one of the first kind of pendulum swings, right, is that the Lord is, is purely loving, purely kind, purely accepting. This is the God who understands your struggle um, and he doesn't judge you, right, for simply being human, for making mistakes. But if if that's who you think God is, there's a problem. Because the cross only makes sense then if you see it as in some sort of act of, of divine love and solidarity instead of divine judgment against sin. 
The cross only makes sense if, if that's who God is, only loving. The cross only makes sense if this is somehow God saying, I relate to you. But the other side of the pendulum, right, swing it to the other side. This side views the Lord as strict, rigid, and demanding. The sermons in those kinds of pulpits are intended to produce guilt and fear that God is going to strike you down at any moment if you don't get your life together. Again, the cross only makes sense then if you see it as as a second chance for you to get it right this time. If If that's how you see God as strict and rigid and demanding, then the cross is just God saying, well, I'm going to give you another try. But you, you can start to see how this not only distorts the cross, but all of the Bible. Because if God is only loving, what do you do when he judges sin? And if God is only demanding, what do you do when he relents from disaster? What do you do with a passage like Exodus 9? Because clearly in this passage, God judges sin. But at the same time, we see his mercy. Judgment and mercy coexisting and working together to declare his name. To declare that there is no one like him. So, to make it nice and tidy, wrap a little bow. Here's our main point this morning. The Lord must judge sin. But he freely offers mercy to those who fear his name. The Lord must judge sin. But he freely offers mercy to those who fear his name. We don't have to look far right, to see the fact that the Lord is judging Pharaoh's sin. Just look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 9. God says to Pharaoh through Moses, For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. Right, the hand of the Lord is the hand of judgment that God is saying, if you don't obey and submit I will judge you for your sin. But you'll notice that this happens not just now, but in this whole plague narrative, and over and over and over again, God sees Pharaoh's sin, Pharaoh hardening his heart, and he sends another plague. And yet the plague is relented, and then Pharaoh sins, and then God judges again. We see over and over and over again the Lord judging sin. Pharaoh constantly refuses. He constantly turns his back on God. But you notice, right, that in uh, our main point, I said that the Lord must judge sin. Not just that he does, but that he must. And that's important. Why must God judge sin? Why is that a must instead of something that he does when he feels like it? Well, it's a must because it's part of who he is. And we could look all over Scripture to see this, that God does not tolerate sin. But specifically in our passage today, we see it in what he says to Pharaoh. Let's read verse 13 again. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, on you yourself, on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me. In all the earth. This judgment is so that Pharaoh may know that there is none like God. And in verse 29, 
when the Lord ceases the thunder and the hail, Moses says, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. You see, God owns the world. And there is no one like him. And what does Pharaoh believe about himself? That he is the owner of, of Egypt and that he is just like God. That he is every bit as powerful as God. He is every bit as strong as God. That God can't contest him. And so when, in verse 17, the Lord says to Pharaoh that Pharaoh is exalting himself over God's people. Making himself Israel's God. A God who is demanding and who puts them to work as slaves and who beats them. Not a very good God. And the Lord cannot let Pharaoh's sin stand. And he also has to prove that he is not like Pharaoh. Because think about it this way. Do you want a God who either can't judge sin or who won't judge sin? Because that means that either he is not powerful enough or he's not good enough. We don't want a God who either cannot judge sin and deal with it, nor do we want a God who only does it when he wants to. We need a God who is good, who demonstrates that he owns the earth and he does not rule over it as Pharaoh rules over it. But he is a God who rules over it for good who is just, who pursues justice and makes right the wrongs of the world. And so the Lord proves that he is both. He is more powerful than Pharaoh, and he is more good than Pharaoh. And so in the first part of chapter 9, God kills Egypt's livestock. He then afflicts Egypt with boils in the sixth plague. He rains down hail and thunder upon Egypt. But notice that this whole show is not simply for Pharaoh's sake. Look at verse 15 again. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord wants the entire world to know this. The Lord wants the entire world to know his name. And here what he is showing, what he is teaching Egypt and Israel and the world about his name is that he is not a God who thinks lightly of sin. He is not a God who lets sin go unchecked. He is a God who demands obedience and submission. And that the consequences are death and judgment. This is the message that the plagues are conveying to the world. As they watch from outside and look at what's happening in Egypt, they see that God is not just wiping them off in one go. They see that he is continually showing his power, continually uh, putting out judgment upon sin. But notice again that the Lord says... He could have done this in one go. He's powerful enough. He could have just wiped Israel, or excuse me, Egypt out in one go. 
And the message to the world would have been the same. Don't mess with God. The earth belongs to him. But he doesn't. Why not? It's because when the Lord says that he wants his name to be proclaimed in all the earth, there is another side of that message. That the first side of that message is that the Lord is powerful, that he must judge sin. But the second side of that message is that he gives so many opportunities to show his mercy. He could have wiped Egypt out. But God doesn't do that because his name means, yes, he must judge sin. But he gives Pharaoh ten undeserved opportunities to repent. In our passage, he even extends that opportunity to all of Egypt. In verse 19, the Lord says, I'm going to strike Egypt with hail. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that's in the field into safe shelter. In verse 20, then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Even as judgment is about to strike, God says, I will give you a way out. You don't deserve it. But I am also merciful. So when the Lord gives this opportunity, he shows to the world that yes, he must judge sin. But if you repent, there is a way out. If you fear him, there is salvation. And so the Lord purposely withholds judgment for a day so that the Egyptians who fear his name have a chance to save their possessions. And that's what we call mercy. An undeserved relenting from deserved judgment. And he extends this mercy to Pharaoh time after time after time. That when Pharaoh says in verse 27 and 28, that he has sinned, plead with the Lord, God listens. And he has mercy on Pharaoh. But unlike his judgment, he does not have to offer mercy. God must judge sin because if he doesn't, it goes against everything that he is. It shows that he's not good and he's not just. But he, what reason does he have to show mercy? He, is, he, he doesn't have to show mercy. But he does. Because he wants to. Because it's every bit about his own name. To say that yes... He is a God who judges sin, and yet he is a God who will show undeserved mercy to deserving sinners. He wants the whole world to hear about Egypt, not just so that they will hear about the judgment, so that they'll hear about his mercy, so that they'll hear about this God who owns the whole world and yet does not rule it like the kings of the world rule. They'll hear about every plague and disaster that struck Egypt, and they'll hear about how God relented from every plague and every disaster. And they'll hear about how two people escaped from the disasters. Israel and those who feared his name. 
See, the proclamation of His name is an invitation. It's an invitation to the world to join His people and to be spared from the disaster. And not even Pharaoh himself would be denied this mercy if he would just accept it. And for the first time in the entire book, it seems like Pharaoh is going to. In verse 27, it's, it's, we, we, for the first time, it seems like Pharaoh's heart is cracking because he says, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. And we're like, finally! <laughs> finally! You get it. You've been sinning. This is wrong, and God is right. And where hearts are filled because maybe he's going to let Israel go this time. Finally, he's repenting. And then two dreadful words crush all of that hope. This time. This time I have sinned. This time you've sinned? After how many plagues? Six? Seven? Now you think you've sinned? You don't think you sinned before? This time, Pharaoh? And it reveals his heart. That he is not actually sorry for his sin. He's sorry for the consequences that he has had to bear. He is sorry for the pain and for the damage that he has done. Because it affects him. And not because he is sorry he has offended the God of all the earth. And Moses rightly sees through Pharaoh's facade... Because in verse 30, Pharaoh says, but, or Moses says, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. He does not fear the Lord God. And so, he uses God's mercy. He does not accept it as a free offer. He does not acknowledge that he is the sinner and God is the righteous one, putting out righteous judgment. And accepting mercy. Instead, he uses it as relief. He does not accept the offer. He seems to, but what happens? What happens as soon as the skies turn blue? Verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. Pharaoh feared the consequences, not God. He wanted to run from the judgment, and he was not running to the Lord's mercy. Because that's what it means to fear the Lord. God must judge sin, and he freely offers mercy, but only those who fear him will accept it. Because it is only those who fear him who truly acknowledge that they don't deserve it. And we could spend days talking about what it means to fear the Lord, to fear His name. But suffice to say for today, fearing the Lord's name means acknowledging that He would be perfectly just to judge you for your sin. But at the same time, clinging to that offer of mercy. 
clinging to the fact that he offers mercy and saying, Lord, I don't deserve it. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's hard to do both those things at the same time. Because we either, we want to get rid of his judgment so that we don't feel guilty. So that we don't have to deal with our own sin. Or we want to get rid of his mercy so that we don't feel like a burden to God. We want to do away with his mercy so that we can do it ourselves. So we don't have to rely on him. So that we can say that, yeah, I just need to do better. We don't want to believe that our sin is that bad. And we don't want to believe that he's going to forgive you again. It's hard to believe that. But going back to our intro today, the cross only makes sense when you see both his judgment and his mercy. God has to judge your sin. He must. There's no way around it. Your sin has to be dealt with. But as soon as he had pronounced the guilty verdict upon you, he put the noose around his own neck. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And the cross only makes sense when you see both God's judgment against sin, the the price of sin, and the fact that he was willing to pay it. That Jesus Christ paid the price of your sin on the cross freely because he wanted to. See, the cross is, is it's not God's act of solidarity. Nor is the cross God saying, well, I'm going to give you a chance to do better this time. The cross is your salvation. The cross is where God judged your sin, and yet you live. Because Jesus Christ lives. And the cross is a message to the entire world. It's an invitation to the entire world to say, God has to judge your sin, but if you would bow at the foot of the cross, you will have mercy. And it's tempting. It's tempting to reject God's mercy, to say in your heart, I don't need it, or I'm not ready. I'm not ready to commit to God. And it's also tempting to say, well, God can't forgive me. I'm just like Pharaoh. God, God won't forgive me. But two things. First, God's mercy is always undeserved. Of course, he can forgive you. Because it doesn't depend on you at all. And second, we're about to baptize tiny little Corbin. We're about to baptize Corbin, who doesn't even know what the word mercy means yet. 
but he's about to receive it. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? Someone who who does not know what it means, who cannot accept it for their own, and yet the Lord is going to baptize Corbin and say to him, you are mine. And he's going to proclaim to everyone that Corbin belongs not to the world, not to Egypt, but he belongs to God's people. God is claiming Corbin for himself, showing mercy to one who does not deserve it and who can't even speak to accept it. So as you witness Corbin's baptism this morning, remember your own. Remember your own baptism. Remember that before you ever accepted God, he accepted you first. Before you ever said that you believe, that you accept his mercy, God said, I will die for you. And I will take upon myself your sin. Remember that and believe in the gospel. Father in heaven, we thank you for this gift. We thank you that you poured out everything you had for us. That even though we deserved your righteous wrath, you have given us mercy. Father, may you guide us, confirm everything that you have told us to our hearts, that we may believe in the gospel. We may take seriously your claims upon our lives, but we may also delight in the mercy that you have shown us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.